question because I follow you on Twitter and you definitely do a lot of activist work and stuff, um, which is beautiful. Like, I'm still here for it. But how does that then inform the way you approach those situations and advocacy and like that work? Um, ah, uh, yes. So I will have to preface though and say that I treat my Twitter as my Finsta. <laughs> so I really be saying the wildest shit on there with no filter because I'm like, if you're that upset, unfollow me. Um, that being said, I do think though, when it comes to things like Twitter, or even just Instagram, I am now at a point where I will just share things that I think need to be seen or heard or read. And I've tried to kind of like making myself start doing that a little more on Facebook as well. Um, Cause I was mainly active on Instagram and Twitter for, for years and Facebook was just kind of there. But I was like, you know, for, so when I, remember, I remember when I was younger, I would be so terrified, terrified of ever posting anything on Facebook because I couldn't get over the thought, oh my God, what if someone reads it, we'd write it. What if people get upset at me? What if they think weird? Oh my God, is someone gonna judge me? And I literally couldn't make a post on a fucking social media website because I was pressed about people judging me. But now I'm like, yo, like whether or not you like what I'm sharing, whether or not you think poorly of me, at the end of the day, it's going to show up on your screen and you're going to have to scroll past it. And I just want to get these resources out to give you the opportunity to learn. And if people don't want to learn, whether it's things that have to do with our history of white supremacy, whether it has to do with queer history in the US, whether you're trying to study and learn about the past of Native Americans on this land, whatever it is, once I give you the resource or once it's been shared and you scroll past it, it is now on you. But just in the same way that like, I get really pissed off at people who do not wear masks the moment they step out of their house. I had a period where I was enraged. I'm talking enraged. I wanted people to get the virus because I thought they were making the world worse. I'm like, maybe if you'll get it, you'll die off. If I'm being blunt, if I'm being honest with y'all. I wanted people to get sick because I was like, why is it fair that you get to spread this to people like me and others who are trying to survive but because you want to be careless and care about your individuality, we have to suffer. But after being so angry for so long, I got to a point where I was like, you know what, Jesus, even if I think that this rage and this anger is justified, at the end of the day, I'm the one spending all of my days being angry. And I don't know if I'm loving you well enough while angry. I don't know if I'm suitably loving others well enough while angry. I don't know if I'm doing the work while angry. And so I kind of had to let it go. And now I'm at a place where I'm like, bro, if you're not wearing a mask, I think that's shitty. But all I can focus is on myself making sure I don't wear a mask, making sure I wear a mask, and making sure I'm not the one responsible for any deaths. Has that, has that impacted, I guess, your, like, in-person, like, deep conversations about issues like that with people? Has that changed the way you can, I guess, have productive conversations about race and queerness and the church and Native issues and et cetera, et cetera? Like, that sort of shift in the way you approach that. Yes, I would definitely say yes. Um, kind of, I, this past, okay, little side note, this past January, I finally learned to love myself. <laughs> it's been 20 years, bitch, 20 years. It was like 18, 19 of me hating myself. As I mentioned earlier, thinking I belonged in hell. Finally accepted myself like June 28, 2019. But it wasn't until like January 20, 2020 when I was like, wow, no, I think I'm hot shit. I love myself. Like, I think I'm a good time. If you disagree, that's your problem. But um, as I've grown more in my self-love, I think I've always realized that all of my self-love and my ideals of self-love are tied to my favorite Bible verse, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Um, I'm not going to recite it to you all, but it's the one where Jesus says there are two great, two greatest commandments, love God, love people, right? 
And I remember growing up hearing sermons on this and there was always that like, oh, love your neighbor as yourself part. And I remember being so confused because I was like, how do I love people when I hate myself? Like, I think I love people kind of okay, but I really, really hate myself. So like, do I need to love myself? But as I've kind of like engaged more with it, I've engaged with it in the sense of like, Jesus, I think you want me to love myself because I don't think I can give real love to anyone until I've done so. And that's kind of like a bleak and like strong statement to make, but I really, let me rephrase. I do think you can love people even if you don't love yourself, but I do think that the quality of love and the type of love that you give will be lesser than from someone who does love themselves and sees themselves in the same way that God sees them, you know? And I think that as I've grown to love myself more, as I've kind of engaged more with activism, as I've thought more about these things, wrestled with that, I just became more confident. With my confidence came more comfort with confrontation. Um, And I think now I'm at a point where I struggle sometimes to really talk about topics related to race, queerness, gender, um, classism, because I think a lot of people try to talk to me because they want to prove to me that I'm wrong. And they feel like they want to influence me in some kind of way and change me for the better. And that shit pisses me off. If you want to have a conversation as a way of trying to learn more, but recognizing from the start, I am not trying to convince you of anything and you are not trying to convince me of anything, then I think we can have a wonderful conversation. We can really talk about things. We can really share our feelings and like really engage. In, and it'll still be uncomfortable, but I think it'll be so much more productive. But I think I'm a little too sensitive right now to people trying to change me and who I am and how I think that when I feel that I just get angry and I really can't help it. And I really try to like hold it down. And, and if I get angry, I like to think I communicate well. So I like, I'd probably tell someone, hey, you know, I'm getting a little too angry right now. Probably can't have this conversation anymore. I'm going to end it and I'm going to walk away. Um, but some people don't kind of let up. And so then they'll like continue pressing in. And that's when I'll get worried that I'll like kind of blow up on them. But I think I'm just at a place where it's like, I don't want to repeat that, like, oh my God, it's not politics, it's about life kind of cliche rhetoric. But I do think that if you are not anything but white, if you are not queer, if you're not poor, if you're not a woman, then you can do nothing but listen. And these aren't points of disagreement. It's not about politics anymore. It's about our lived human experiences. And if you don't want to believe me, that's your problem. That is your problem. But I'm not going to waste my time and my breath trying to convince you of things that have happened to me and to those that I love and the communities that are marginalized. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you don't believe in oppression, okay, goodbye. Like, I don't know. If you are like, hey, I don't believe in oppression, but I kind of want to hear what you have to say on it. Great, let's talk. But I am not out here trying to do the work of convincing people who don't even want to listen. That is not my problem. I'm not their savior. And whether they go to death or go to their deathbed with those same thoughts and beliefs, or whether they meet someone one day who has the patience to walk them through it. I just don't care. I just don't. I used to be really unhealthy for it. So I used to be a lot like a two. I wanted everyone to love me. I wanted to be nice. I wanted to be really helpful to everyone. I wanted to be so kind. Oh my God. I gave all that bullshit up. I don't really care if people don't like me anymore or not. I don't care if you think I'm mean. I don't care if you think I'm an asshole. I am minding my business. Just doing me, just trying to vibe. And if that upsets you in some kind of way, that just speaks to you and your problems and not me. So I don't like dealing with others' projections. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That was a lot of an answer. I don't know if I actually answered what you asked me, but. <laughs> yeah, you did. You did. Okay, wonderful. 
One thing that I keep thinking back to on the topic of like listening is just the power that doubt can have mm. and like wonder and in both directions, that is. I think of uh, people doubting, do masks really work right now? And someone else hears that that person's doubting. They aren't trying to convince them. They're just like, uh, does this really work? And then a pe- bunch of people start doing something because of that. Now, am I saying that they have the scientific evidence or any research to back it up? No. And that's an important step of the process of doubt, which I think is that reconstruction, that building. But another form of that is like people doubting, really women can't be in leadership in the church? That's really a thing? What is that? And then they start talking about it. They start looking into interpretations. They start working with this with their church. And then women are in leadership and it's like, we're starting to move things. So yeah, I I just, I think it's, it's interesting on what you're saying. Like if we're listening, if we're listening to the voices around us, it doesn't even have to be the loudest voices, but the people who are like, man, I don't know about this and like uplifting those voices that can cause a bunch of difference because there's going to be other people that will be like, Hey, I, I thought that too, but I, I didn't feel like I could actually say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think an important follow-up to that is definitely the research. And I would, oh, sorry, sorry. No, you're good. I would just like to add, because I don't know if you're going to move on after this or not, but um, on the topic of listening, I just want to say none of us, whether we're queer, whether we're um, brown, black, a POC who's non-Black, whether we're women or whatever, we are not obligated to educate anyone. And so I find often these conversations about listening are sweet. And if you have people in your life who really want to talk with you, listen to them. But I also find that there's a almost equal amount of people who, it's like, okay, we're here ready to listen. Why aren't you talking? Why aren't you doing the work? Why didn't know? Why didn't you educate me? And that pisses me off. Pisses a lot of us off. One person can't answer to a whole community. And also, one person doesn't even need to give you answers for (laughs) themselves. Like, so it's like, you can't demand that from someone. You just around. There are plenty of people that are hurting right now that have their stories out there that don't, (laughs) you don't have to like pull off of the porn and be like, tell me your story. No, and going right off that, what you just said, Austin, is I last thing about that is, I guess, remember listening can often look a lot like reading. Yeah. Period. Look it up. Google Education. it. <laughs> Educating yourself on stuff. Just do it. There's Google for a reason, you know? It's there to ask, que- just answer questions. Like, it's out there. You're peer reviewed and, you know, dated and stuff and like from a good resource. And yeah. No. Yeah. You, no one is entitled to someone having to justify their existence to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No one is entitled to anyone's truth. That's a lesson I have to learn. Um, I think earlier this year that really had me wrecked because uh, I guess a little short story. I had this close friend of mine freshman year. Really loved her. We got really, really close. And then one, at one point during the fall semester year, she started kind of ghosting. Granted, we were like in the same friend group. It was literally just four of us. And we were always hanging out, had a group text. But she stopped talking to me kind of all together. She wouldn't really like talk to me when we were hanging out. She never responded to my text in the group chat. I'd ask her about it. And she just, she like, and if I tried approaching her, she just wouldn't really, she was kind of ignoring me. Um, 
And eventually she just ended our friendship and quite literally just ghosted me, never spoke to me again. And I remember feeling really pressed about it because I was like, damn, I really love this person. Like, I really love this person. And granted, I get it. I'm sure I did some stupid shit that really upset them and hurt them. And like, I'm sorry for that. And I did apologize to them. But I remember for so long, I felt so angry and frustrated. I was like, why can't you at least even tell me what I did wrong so that I cannot do it to others? Like, why won't you tell me? But then I one day I was like, yeah, no, why do they have to? Why does anyone have to tell you anything? Why does anyone owe you any kind of explanation for anything? They don't. If they're nice, if they like you, they might give it to you. But if they don't give it to you, they're not bad and they're not mean. And I think that's something that I, that's a tangent. Anyway, so I feel like in the same way, no one owes you their truth. And it doesn't matter how frustrated you are or how useful it would be to share, how helpful, how kind you think it is. We do not owe you our truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting perspective too, because I, I usually see it from the perspective of like, I, I don't have to tell people truths or vulnerable things about me. Mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable with it. Like, I just, I don't have to give them that. But seeing it in that light, it's, it's interesting to look at and kind of scale with the amount of like loyalty to that person. Like, what are your expectations? If things have been communicated and guide and things are being broken in that, that's when it's like, okay, we set things and this isn't happening now. Like there's a whole thing, but in order for that to happen, there's commitment. So I think when it comes to like faith and people wanting answers and, and all that type of stuff, most of the time people aren't actually forming that. Right. Um, Sarah, do you have any more questions? Uh, I was going to ask one more and that was about it. But. Um, I do, I guess I have like one question. I hope it's not, I'm not going to steal your question, Austin, but if I do, it is what it is. You gave me this opportunity. It's your fault now. Um, <laughs> Um, but how do you think, Ian, leaning into the concept of wonder and doubt and questioning can impact the church and the world for the better? I think, I think it is important for us to remember that we are created in the image of God. Um, and I thought a lot about how I think that that endows us all with some sort of degree of infinity, right? And that sounds kind of weird, but maybe it's just my youth talking, but I feel like sometimes people feel like they really feel like they're infinite, you know? Moments, memories, feelings, thoughts, they can feel infinite and they can, and humans can feel so powerful. We can feel like, oh my God, the world is my oyster. I can do anything I want, blah, blah, blah. And then yet we're also reminded of just exactly how finite we are and how limited and how human. And, um, and I'm sure, I think I've heard Derek talk about, from what I remember when I was in CCW, Derek would talk about it. And it's this idea that, you know, from dust you are and from dust you will return. I think it's something you talk about during Ash Wednesday. Um, and I think a lot about that. And I, I struggled a lot with the church. Um, as like the church, not like a church. Because it's just in my, for most of my life experience, I've seen it be do much more harm than good. And I feel like that's a, a very common perspective that is now being taken for a lot of young millennials and younger people in the church. Um, but I think that churches, I see them start to really go wrong when they really, really think they're hot shit. When they think that they're the ones going out and they're spreading the right messages and they're really doing the right thing. And it's like, you know, maybe you got something right, maybe you did, but you, 
are not going to be responsible for saving the world. You might not even be responsible for saving one person, you know? And I think that to remember how limited you are and how it's not really about you, it is about God. And you are merely an instrument, a servant, trying to help with this mission. I feel like you have to let go of that pride and you really have to hold yourself. Hmm, okay, This might sound kind of jarring to listeners, but a quick, I think, parallel that makes sense, makes sense to me is, to, I'm gonna get nerdy for a second. When you, when you create theories, when you create scientific theories and scientific laws, you have to do so by a series of experiments, right? A lot of studies all have to be replicated and done that kind of collect a large amount of data that all say, hey, this one thing we're saying happens in the world, it does. And we have all this data, like our statistically significant amount of data that quote unquote proves it, shows it, whatever. Um, but the gag is, let's say you had 20 years of research that all strongly supported this one theory. We all thought it was great. We're like, wow, we figured it out. And then I conduct a study and I show that it's wrong. And my study is, it's a good study, it's a strong study, but it shows that this theory, which we all thought was right, was wrong. And now if we were doing good science, we literally have to take that theory and throw it away. You deadass have to throw it away. I could be talking about models, but either way, you have to throw it away and you have to start from scratch. Because if you're trying to create a theory or a model that really captures something in the world that's correct, it has to be correct in all instances. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so I think the reason I say that is I think churches sometimes build ministries, they build programs, they build whatever, and it really works for a lot of people for a long period of time. And so they think they got it. They're like, good, listen, listen, y'all. We got it right. We got it good. Look at all the good work we're doing. But you have to be ready that at any moment, if anyone joins your congregation and says something to you, shows you something out of love, like they're really, they're not just some changer, someone who's really part of the congregation, they show you that something is wrong. You have to throw it all away. You have to throw it all away. Because if you want to actually capture um, an understanding of God, and if we believe God is all encompassing and has everything and is everything, right? And you want to kind of like take that and give it to people and blah, 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 do ministry. It has to capture everyone, right? And there are different, I think, different churches, different people. Sometimes you find that this theology doesn't work for you, but this one does. But I think that as churches try to grow and try to really expand and do good into the world, I think you just have to at any moment basically be ready to be wrong. Yep. Be ready to realize you're wrong and be ready to start from scratch. Because how many times did Jesus say, like, how many times did Jesus just sass the Pharisees? Sass the Pharisees and be like, y'all who think you, you, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. He said that how many times? And every single time he said, but I say to you. I think if he was here, he would do that now. He might say, you have heard it said, Romans, blah, 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 blah. But he would say, but I say to you. And I think how true is that to this day? Yeah. That doesn't matter how well you memorize scripture, how much you know its history, how well you know your congregants. At any moment, if you, meet, if you come across someone new and they challenge your worldview and you really believe them and love them, believe God loves them and believe that what they're saying is true, you might just have to start from scratch. And you gotta stay open to that type of criticism or that type of doubt, like, and I, I think what you're getting at with the churches too, oftentimes the reason they crumble and cease to really be relevant is because they don't do that. They don't have a space where someone could be like, hey, the way you're doing this is upsetting and it's not working with this theology or with this practice. Um, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, 
And I think we're seeing that with like the ex-evangelical movement, right? You have these people who it didn't work for and they said, hey, this isn't working. And the church said, too bad. This is how it is. Mm. And like, there's this mass exodus occurring in this separate community, which has its problems granted, like yeah. forming because the church said, no, this is how it's been. They didn't listen to the, but I say to you. Yeah. Awesome. I love that question. That was super great. Um, well, we have one last question, um, and then we'll be wrapping it up here. Um, and that last question is, what advice would you have for someone who is questioning um, their faith um, or just questioning themselves in general? Hmm. Advice, some advice. Ooh. Um... Mm -hmm. I would invite them to open open up the Bible, go to Exodus, and I can't find it right now, but find the story of Jacob wrestling with God. Um, the story that leaves Jacob with a limp. Because um, I, to summarize the story, basically Jacob was walking at night. I think he came across another man, is what the Bible says. And I think the man wanted to cross the river or something. But um, Jacob, I think, knew that there was something special about this man. And so he wanted a blessing. But the other man was like, I'm not going to give you a blessing. <laughs> but so then Jacob starts wrestling him. And they wrestled, the Bible says, throughout the whole night until morning, until sunrise. And the story goes that the man was God. And that God was wrestling with Jacob because Jacob wanted his blessing. And once the sun comes up, I think, I'm really bad at quoting scripture, but I think it ends along the lines of like, you know, God realized like, wow, you were committed, you wrestled with me and you did not give up until I gave you my blessing. So here it is. And he touched his hip, which did leave him with a limp forever, but he gave him the blessing. And I remember reading about this in this book called Inspired by Rachel Hill Evans, where she talked about how when it doesn't make sense, when it doesn't make sense and you feel like you're screaming and you're crying and it's all crashing down in front of you, realize that you're wrestling with God. You're wrestling with God because you want to make sense. You want it to make sense. You want to believe in a God who is loving, who is righteous, who is just, and who is all these good things, but it doesn't feel good at all in your heart. And some like strict Calvinist people don't really like mess with feelings. They're gonna be like, oh no, your heart will deceive you. You cannot trust it. You have to rely on the word of God. But I think so much, God, so many times in my life, God has met me through my feelings. He meets us in our humanity. He made you that way, bro. Like he gave you your feelings, your thoughts and your behaviors. He designed you as you are. He wanted you to be the person you are. And if you are feeling this upset or this conflicted about your relationship with God, with Jesus, with the church, with anything like that, um, that's just a sign that something's wrong. <laughs> something is up, bro. Something is up and you should probably do something about it. And whether doing something about it means you should leave the church, it means you need to stop going to youth group, it means you need to read the Bible every day for five weeks or for like five weeks, whatever. Whatever it is, I think that there is no right answer. There is no one way to handle it. But I would want you to just take a moment to pay attention and to notice that you feel so conflicted because this is meaningful. Some people might say you have little faith, but if you had little faith, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't be pressed and you wouldn't be upset. You would have moved on. But because you're so conflicted, it's, it's a sign that this is meaningful to you. And if it's meaningful to you, maybe you're wrestling with God. 
maybe you're really wrestling with God over what's right, what's not right. Is it okay to be gay? Does God hate all queers? Are women really supposed to like submit to all men everywhere? Like, is, are there two genders? Are there more genders? What the hell? Like, what am I hearing? None of it makes sense. But I, all, the only advice I can say is to bring it up with God. Bring it up with God. And if that means praying and crying every day for a week, if that means just sitting in the discomfort in your room in silence, just upset, if that means like going out and talking to different pastors and Catholic priests and just trying to get people's view on it. I think that like, bro, the Christian community really tries to run us out, really doesn't want us queer people involved because we're a threat, I guess, to what they got going on. But I've been saying for years now, it is the queer church. It is the queer church that is going to save the American church. Because we are the ones who you have convinced that we are going to burn in hell. And you have quite literally been murdering us for, for years, for years. But we're still here. <laughs> Bro, we're the ones who are still kicking saying, no, I want Jesus too. And while the rest of y'all took Jesus as a privilege because it's what your parents taught you to believe. I feel like I've had to fight for my rights to love Jesus as if it was, it was life or death. You know what I'm saying? And so if you are in any position like that or you're just really, really questioning and you don't know where to go and you feel like everything's crumbling down, let it. Let it, but always remember that the fact that you're upset at all is simply because you love God. And that's all you need. That's literally all you need. That's all God wants. He wants you. They want you to love them. Mm -hmm. And everything else will work itself out. Not in this moment. Maybe not in the next year even. But it will work itself out. Because if you really believe, at, le at least in one point, that there's a God who will never give up on you, they won't. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's... I love that Genesis 32 story. And I love the way you just painted it like that. That was incredible like yeah. thank you yeah Ian thanks so much um that pretty much wraps up everything so thank you Ian so much for being on this podcast and uh sharing your wisdom and your thoughts um and thank you for everyone who viewed this um you're always helpful in this process with your comments um and I hope you keep in touch with all the Reconciling Ministry content and blogs going on. There's a lot happening um, and a lot more is gonna be happening throughout the semester. Um, and I'll keep you updated about all of that. But I hope you can tune in to our next Perfect Love podcast, which will be Tuesday, September 8th at 7 p.m. Um, yeah, well, love y'all. Bye. Thank you.